a pretty awesome reunion. But uh, pray for them. a lot of time to have a really nice garden or a nice flower bed. And I love to look at uh, flowers and have, you know, you go by a street and someone just has a really nice yard, you know, and I get jealous of it. I think, man, that's really nice. But Leslie and I both are horrible at keeping things alive. Uh, we've tried, we've tried to do some things in our front yard and, uh, you know, it, it's okay, but, uh, you know, we decided to put ferns up. We thought, well, ferns are, uh, you know, pretty low maintenance and uh, pretty hardy. So let's get some hanging baskets and put, uh, put some ferns on our front porch. And those poor ferns, uh, we just cannot, we just can't even keep a fern alive. Our neighbor, uh, Blanca, you guys, many of you met her on Easter Sunday. She came with us and we have such a good relationship with her. And she comes over all the time, and I see she just shakes her head. She says, those poor ferns, because she has nice ferns, okay? She has a nice, nice flowers and things. We have a ring doorbell, okay? And many of you have those uh, with the camera. And uh, we saw her on the ring just the other day. She was out there watering our ferns. <laughs> she just <laughs> grabbed the hose, and she's watering them. And so, well, we're giving her something to do at least, so. But, uh, you know, gardening and having plants, it's, it's a lot of work, right? It's tilling the ground, it's, you know, preparing the soil, planting seeds, watering, fertilizing. You know, many of you maybe have to put things out around the garden to keep the critters from getting in and pulling weeds. And it's just this constant process. And there's really no guarantee that the surds will germinate and grow, right? You're just kind of taking a chance. It's all up to the Lord. Uh, but we can do all the work, really, and it never produce anything. Well, I would say that sharing the gospel is very similar to that. Uh, we can uh, sow the seed, we can water the seed, but if God doesn't give the growth, the plants don't grow. The same way, I want to encourage you that success in evangelism, success in sharing the gospel, is not in saving people. Okay, that's something that God does. Uh, that's up to the Lord. To, uh, to bring a harvest. So I would say that success is in the sowing. Success is in the sharing. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of Paul here as he makes his way to Athens, Greece. And I love Paul. We're going to see his life and how he just sows the gospel everywhere he goes. He just shares the story of Christ. And um, we're going to see how God responded in growing those seeds or not allowing those seeds to grow in order to hopefully encourage you today to continue sowing seeds and sharing and speaking for Christ. So Acts chapter 17, let's uh, begin reading in verse 16. All right, the Bible says here, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, 
and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and they brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine, whereof thou speakest, is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. All right, let's pray. Lord, again, we want to thank you for this day and for your word. And just thankful for the opportunity to preach your word this morning. And God, we ask that you would really meet with us today, speak to our hearts, and uh, help us to be obedient to you. Again, I pray for that one maybe here today that doesn't know you as Savior, that you would speak to them. And uh, Lord, we just ask that you would be glorified in all that we do today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want to give you two truths, two insights into this text that I think will be helpful for us as we kind of understand what Paul is doing here in this passage. Here's the first truth that we see in the life of Paul. Paul shows us that the gospel message is offensive to sinners. Okay, so number one, the gospel message is offensive to sinners. It's offensive to lost people. Uh, You guys, many of you know this, right? When sharing the gospel with a lost person, they don't say, wow, you know, I can't believe uh, I never knew that. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm going to give my life to Christ. That's not typically how it happens. Now, sometimes it does, right? Sometimes the fruit is just ripe for the picking, and sometimes that happens, but usually not. So Paul goes to Athens. Now, let me paint the picture of uh, the city for you. The Bible says here that Paul goes to the city, and he's overwhelmed. This is a very overwhelming experience for Paul. I mean, he gets there, and the text says that he does something interesting. Look at verse 16 again. The key word here is the little word Saul. You see that? He saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, why is that important? The, this word Saul is the same word for beholding. Okay, that he, he didn't just casually kind of like meander through the city, but he, he saw, he, he beheld the city. It's actually the same word where we get the word theater. Okay, so he's taking this all in. He's soaking it in. He's sitting back, he's pondering, he's meditating, and he notices that this city is surrounded by pagan idols. Uh, He's surrounded by things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Now, typically the Jews in the first century were encouraged to stay in Israel. Uh, You know, the Jews didn't really venture outside of that area. Um, They were, in fact, you know, kind of told not to, you know, venture out of that area. And so they kind of stayed there in Israel. So Paul's uh, mission to the Gentiles was just mind-blowing because all the Jewish people were typically staying around Israel. And so in a sense, Paul broke the mold, and now he's out west at this point. Okay, He's in Athens, Greece. And I want to describe to you the city. The commentator R. Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, The population of Athens was about 10,000, but there were 30,000 statues of gods. Think of that. Three times as many people. Uh, The streets lined with idols of false deities framed by the architectural magnificence of the Parthenon and the Acropolis. They were dazzling to the eye. So Paul's preaching to the Jews. He's talking about Jesus here in this passage. And these two groups uh, come up on his conversation. And the first, look at the text, the Bible says is the Epicureans. Now the Epicureans here were the practical atheists of the day. 
they never really believed that there was a God, but they loved to talk about things. They really loved debating things. They loved to just sit around and, and talk about new things, new and exciting things, and what's happening. And, and so they were very just intellectual people. Um, they were men who sought pleasure and avoided pain. That was their whole life. That if they could avoid pain, if they could just be happy and not sad, then, then they win. The other extreme here were the Stoics. And the Stoics were, in a sense, pantheists. And um, uh, pantheism is just a big word that means that God is in everything. Okay, if someone is a pantheist today, that, you know, they would say, like, God is in this speaker. And God is in that chair. And God is, you know, in the lights. And so we kind of just worship everything. Right? We're just, we're pantheists. And uh, so they were here worshiping certain idols. So Paul is speaking to these two individuals. And why is this important? Because what he's about to share with them is that, hey, everything you believe in is wrong. That's really what he's going to say to them. Everything that you're believing in, everything that you're putting your faith in is wrong. There's one God. He has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And if you repent and put your faith and trust in him, that's what you need to do. So that's what he's about to share with them. Now, you would think at this point that Paul would have learned. I mean, Paul, you know, what are you doing? You just got in trouble. If you look, and don't, you don't have to do it now, but if you look back in the previous chapter, in chapter 16, uh, he goes to Philippi, and he's preaching the gospel, and he heals this woman who has a demonic spirit, and they take him into the courtroom, and they try him for a crime that he didn't commit, and they beat him, and, and they put him in the inner prison, so I asked this question, like, Paul, you just went through all of that. Why are you still preaching this message about Jesus Christ? And here's why, and don't miss this. I believe it's because Paul never got over being saved. Paul just, he never got over that. And um, I'm sure there are people in here, and even me myself at times, have where we have kind of found ourselves at that place where we have gotten over being saved. And, uh, you know, it's challenging in the Christian life because the longer we're Christians, the easier it is to just kind of become like just you got to go along with the motions, right? You attend church, you read your Bible from time to time, you don't watch certain things, maybe you don't say certain things, and it just kind of becomes this habitual thing in a bad way, all right? Habits are good, but it can be bad, where we just kind of go through the motions, and it's easy to become domesticated as, as a Christian. We lose the passion and we lose the zeal. Let's say, for example, by the way, uh, the Holbrooks over here, they're getting ready to celebrate their 25th anniversary in a couple of days, right? And I was just talking to them this morning, and uh, me and Leslie are, are getting ready to celebrate our 15-year anniversary in just a couple of months. But let's just say, for example, let's say that me and Leslie, and we're not, but just let's just say that we're going to go on an Alaskan cruise, okay? And our, our anniversary is in December, okay? So you can imagine the water is probably very frigid and um, dangerous. And so we're on the boat, and uh, we're just enjoying the scenery, and uh, I fall overboard, okay? Let's say I just fall into the water. And of course, at this point, you know, I'm just treading water, and I'm screaming for help. I'm yelling for, you know, find help, find someone with a lifeboat, throw me a rope, something, and no one is around to help. Okay, let's imagine that at the moment of death, okay, I'm about to die in this water. This man just does a swan dive into the water, saves me, picks me up, takes me 
to a, the, the side of the ship, gets me back on the ship, and he saves my life. Okay, let's say I go to the hospital because I nearly die, and I come to, okay, and the, the news reporters are there, the newspaper's there, and they ask me, what happened? How did you survive? Oh, well, you know, my mom put me in swim lessons when I was a kid, and I was so thankful that I was, allowed, that I was just able to swim. Am I going to say that? No, right? I'm going to say, you'll never believe it. This guy jumped in. He saved my life. He literally saved my life. I was about to die, and, and he just he risked it all and saved me. Now, I would go home. I would tell my parents that story, right? Man, you, you'll never believe this. This guy saved my life. I, I would tell my friends. I would tell my coworkers. For the rest of my life, I would tell everyone that I knew that this man saved me. Now, why is it that we are willing to share a story about someone saving us from physical death, but we shy away from telling the story about someone who has saved us from eternal damnation? You know, why, why does this happen? Now, you know, someone may say, well, I don't believe you actually fell in the water. Well, I did. I was there. I fell in the water and, and this man saved me. Well, you know, I don't believe Jesus is real. He is real, right? I've met him. I know that he's real. He saved my life, and I want to tell you about him. Don't ever, over, don't ever get over being saved. Even if the gospel message is offensive, we need to share the gospel. So not only is the gospel message offensive, but number two, the gospel message is essential for salvation. It's essential for salvation, uh, Paul says in Romans that faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? And he doesn't say that it comes by intellect. He doesn't say that it just comes from philosophy. It comes by the word of God. Look at here in our passage in verse 21. Paul continues, chapter 17, verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So again, he's saying, this is what the Athenians did. They just sat around, they talked about all the new things, something new to learn. Then Paul, verse 22, stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now, what Paul is about to do is genius. And what he does is he starts where the people are. He just, he just starts right where they are. And why is this genius? Well, Paul is in Greece. We have to remember, who came from Greece just a hundred years prior to this? who prided themselves on knowledge and philosophy. These three names you'll probably know. Socrates, right? Uh, Plato and Aristotle. These were philosophers. They sat around talking about knowledge. These men prided themselves on knowledge and, and ever learning and knowing everything. In fact, the things they didn't know, they just sit around, they talk about things that they didn't know, just so they could talk, right? They just wanted to learn. And so they prided themselves on knowledge. And Paul says, I notice you guys know everything. But you don't know this one thing. You have this inscription to the unknown God. And he says, you know, this might be uh, interesting to you. I actually know this God. I, I know who this is. 
And, uh, and I want to tell you about this, this God. I want to tell you about the unknown God. So he meets them right where they are. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, you know, in the book of Psalms or, you know, I read in Genesis or Exodus. He doesn't start there. Okay, but why doesn't he do that? He doesn't use the Bible. It's because they're Greek. Okay, the Greeks didn't typically read the Bible. So here's what he does know, or here's what he does, okay? He knows the Bible, so he, he, he starts with the Bible, but he, he shares the gospel. So he meets them where they are. He speaks the gospel. Uh, notice what he does in verse 24. He does three things, okay? He starts in the past, he makes a beeline to the present, and then he talks about the future. Look at verse 24. God, again, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell in the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So what Paul does is he gives them this fundamental truth that God is the creator of the world. Okay, for a society that wants to learn all things new, he takes them to the past and he starts from the very beginning. Now, one of the reasons I believe that Paul does this is he's just establishing this very fundamental truth that God is the creator of all things. And, you know, there are certain people who claim to be atheists and agnostic, okay? Uh, An atheist is someone who, A, it means no, theist, theism, God, Okay, atheist, no God. They believe that there's no God. So it's an atheist. An agnostic is someone who is saying, A, no, gnostic, gnosis, knowledge. Okay, we have no knowledge. Uh, There's no knowledge of God. So they're not like the atheist who would say, there's no God. Uh, The agnostic would say, well, you know, there could be a God. We don't know him personally. We don't know his name. Uh, We don't have a relationship with him. So I'm going to give you a way this morning to move, hopefully, move an, a, uh, an atheist to an agnostic. Okay, at least that. I'm not saying they're going to be saved, but it's a process, right? We know that evangelism is really a process, and pastors speak so much about cultivating and planting and reaping, and we cultivate relationships, and that's what we do here with, with an atheist. Okay, so if you've ever tried to talk to an atheist about God... They, again, they don't usually say, wow, I didn't know that. You know, I want to give my life to Christ. Uh, you know, it takes time. So um, here's a way that you can maybe talk to an atheist and move them to this place of being an agnostic. Um, do you guys, how many of you played with Legos growing up? Anyone? Legos? Okay, now Legos have come a long way, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, and I just broke mine. Uh, I remember when I was a kid... Now, this is, a, this is my Lego, okay? I love Legos, even today. This is my Lego. And um, as a kid, what did we do? We bought Legos, like, in a box, and we had to use our imagination, right? This isn't my imagination, okay? This is a kit. Uh, I'm not that good. Um, now, Legos are so advanced, you know, you, you can buy sets and make really cool things. Um, but the thing about Lego is, is that... There has to be a designer, right? I mean, when you buy a Lego, it comes in a box like this, and um, they, the Legos come in bags like this, right? And so this is, another, this is the same set. You can change it from green to pink. Um, but I'm manly, so I wanted green. So 
Um, but this is, this is how Legos come, right? So how do we get from here to here? If, if I just lay this bag here, this bag of pieces here, can, can, can it go from the bag to this? No? What if, what if I leave it for five years? What if I leave this here for five years? Will this bag ever assemble itself and create this? What about 500 years? Five million years? What if I shake the bag up and like bang it together? Is it going to come? Is it going to form into this? Never, right? Why? Because it has to have a creator, right? It has to have, it has to have a designer, Someone has to make this. And that's exactly what Paul does here in this passage with these atheists and these agnostics. He starts uh, where they are. He starts in the past. He moves them to the present. And this is what Paul is saying. Just look all around you. Just look, look at creation. You can see the sky. You can see the stars. You can, you can see the, the trees and the, and the water. And there has to be a creator. There's an intelligent design. And, and that's where he starts with these, with these people. But then he moves to the present. Look at verse 27. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for, ye, or for we are also his Offspring. So what he's saying is that everything you have is from God. All right, every breath that you take is from the Lord. Then he moves to the future. Look at verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Now, here's what's amazing to me about Paul's message Does anyone get saved? After, preaching, after Paul preaching in Athens? No. Any decisions made? Anybody sign cards? Anybody walk the aisle? Anyone get baptized? No. And some secular liberal scholars would say that Paul's mission to Athens was just a complete failure. But see, Paul knows that success in evangelism is not in the saving. That's something that God does. It's in sharing the gospel, sowing the seed. So here's what I want to do today. I want to give you the gospel, okay? And uh, what is the gospel? I want to give you four things. Uh, this is what the gospel is, okay? It's God, man, Christ, and response, okay? God, man, Christ, response. And it's very easy. You can repackage this. You can share it in your neighborhood. You can share it with your coworkers, now, let me just say on the front end, God, again, he brings the response. You ask them to respond, but God ultimately brings the response. So, number one, let's start here with God, okay? We were created by God. We know this. Uh, everything in the world is created by God. The stars in the sky, the planets he placed. He made the birds in the air, the fowl of the sea. Uh, or the, he made, you know, everything. He made us, Genesis 126. 
The Bible says that God made man in his own image, and he actually made him in his own likeness. And because God made you and me, we are accountable to God. That makes sense to me. That makes sense. That God is the creator of all things. He created me, so therefore I'm accountable to him. Uh, So one day we're going to stand before God. And what that means is that when we die, our last breath here is our first breath there. That's how it works. Last breath here, first breath there. And when we stand before the Lord, we're going to give an account for our life. Right? There's no limbo. Uh, Paul says there's an appointed time, and we'll see that in a second. There's no purgatory, last breath here, first breath there. Now, the problem is that we have a sin problem, which is man. Okay, so God and then man. The man problem is that God told Adam and Eve that, hey, you, you, I'm putting you in this beautiful garden. You can partake of any tree in this garden except for one. And, of course, we know that you know, man sinned, and because our spiritual great-great-grandparents defied God, we are born into the world as sinners. Right? David said in the book of Psalm that in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay? So he was saying from birth, you know, even before birth, before I, before I breathed air, uh, I had a sin nature. I was in sin. So we inherit this nature. We all have this sin problem. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So we know that we have all sinned. Right? And you can tell someone, uh, have you ever told a lie? Uh, it, just even a small lie, just a little white lie. Well, sure, you know, we all have. Have you ever stolen something? Uh, even just something small, you know, like, you know, some change off of uh, the dresser or just uh, even an answer on a test. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, sh- you know, sure, yeah, we all have. Have you ever uh, looked at a person of the opposite sex with lust in your heart? Uh, well, sure. Okay, so if you say yes to just those three things, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving adulterer, right? By your own admission. And so we all have this problem. God, man, and then Christ. This is the good news, Christ. God wraps himself in human flesh. He comes to this earth on a rescue mission to save you and me. He, he lives a perfect life, a life that we couldn't live. The people that he came to save rejected him. They, they crucified him on a cross. They tried him for crimes that he didn't commit. Uh, you know, he didn't deserve those things. It was supposed to be us on the cross. It was our sin that put him there. And after they buried Jesus, three days later, he arose from the grave. And, and uh, he's alive. And you know, he appeared to you know, over 500 people in a 40-day span. And he ascended to heaven. The Bible says that he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And uh, the Bible also says that one day every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that, and claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. So here's what that means for us today. Every person in here is in two categories. The first category is those who willingly accept Christ, Jesus, as Lord and Savior of their life, and they willingly bow the knee to him. Right? That's our choice. But when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as, as humble. He's not coming back as meek. He's coming back as a judge. The Bible tells us that every person is going to bow the knee. So you either bow the knee willingly to him today as Lord, or you are going to bow the knee one day against your will. We're all in one of those two categories. But we're all going to bow the knee one day. We're all going to. Here's the deal. It, it's just going to happen. Now, if you stop there, that's, that's really not the gospel because you have to give this opportunity for people to respond, right? So that's just the gospel in a nutshell. 
right? God, man, Christ, and then a response. So we have to give people an opportunity to respond. That's what Paul says. Repent. There's an appointed time. God's going to judge the world. He says in Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto man once, you see that once to die, after this, the judgment. So once, not limbo, not purgatory, not a holding place. After this, the judgment. So Paul says there's going to come a time when God's going to judge the world and we need to be ready for him. And so I want to challenge you now, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to do that right now. Okay, even now, right here in this, in this place, would you just pray this prayer in your heart to the Lord? God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done things against you. God, I, I, I have disobeyed. I, I have broken your law. I acknowledge you as my Savior. And God, I pray that you would save me. Save me from damnation. God, I acknowledge you as Lord of my life. I don't call the shots anymore. You're in control. I'm not the captain of my own ship. And God, I invite you into my life. Would you save me? Did anyone pray that prayer from their heart? Would you be willing to raise your hand so we can rejoice with you? Anyone? Anyone here today? Okay. Well, hey, that's great. That means hopefully we're all saved here today. So, uh, you know, here's how we want to apply this text, okay? For those of you that believe, I want to give you two things, okay? And here's the first one. First of all, I want you to adopt a long-term view of ministry, okay? We all need to do this. We need to have this long-term, this long view of ministry. I already mentioned this. Some liberal theologians have said that Paul's trip to Athens was a waste of time. You know, there were no decisions. No one was saved. And if you're judging based on decisions and numbers and responses, it absolutely was a waste of time, right? Because nothing really that we know of, okay, nothing really happened. Uh, Nobody, no one trusted Christ. But here's the thing we know about the Apostle Paul when we read his writing. Paul had a long view of ministry. Paul just faithfully shared the gospel. Paul knew that God was the one who saves, and success for him was in the sharing. It was in the sowing of the seed. Now, what this does is, if we only gauge success in a church by a one-time event, or the responses at that one-time event, we're communicating to the people three things, and I want to give them to you. The first thing that we communicate to the church, if that's our philosophy, is that the paid ministers are doing all the ministry, while the, the members just sit idly by and watch. I mean, think about it. You know, we can easily communicate this. Hey, listen, we've got this. You know, we'll plan the, we'll plan the event. You know, we'll send out the flyers. We'll run the Facebook ads. You know, we'll, we'll get the people here. We'll plan the missions trips. Uh, we'll invite everyone. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to provide an invitation. We're going to counsel the people. And then we get all the glory. Right, that could very easily be communicated, and here's and, and here's what we subconsciously communicate. If that's the case, to our people, you just you just sit by and watch. You just sit, you just sit and watch, right? And obviously, that was not that's not biblical, okay? And that's not what Paul's heart was. Uh, Paul's for Paul, success in ministry is what he taught about in Ephesians four, verse eleven, twelve, and thirteen. When the apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers equipped the saints, and, then, and they equipped the members to do the work of the ministry. So success in a church is not how well we as a staff execute the ministry. It's how well we equip you to partner in ministry. 
And uh, why would we ever want to rob you of the blessing of, of serving the Lord? You know, something happened this week um, where many of you know Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah's been coming to church here for, for about a month now. And uh, he had hip surgery and he had a need. And uh, he texted me and asked me, hey, could, could you uh, get some items to me? Uh, I need some, some items that are transporting me from the hospital to a, a rehab facility, and I need a few things. Can you get them for me? And I said, you know, I'll take care of it. And here's the thing. I, I almost did it myself, and, and I could have done it myself. But then I thought, you know what? I, I want to provide an opportunity for other people to do ministry, you know, if they so choose. And so I put a message out on Facebook, and, and someone in this room right now volunteered, and, and they got all the things that he needed and delivered them to him. And, and I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm grateful that we have a church where people do that. They step up and they take care of things. But we want to provide opportunities for you to do ministry uh, because, you know, that's really the success of a church is when we're all involved in ministry. And when I'm talking about ministry, I'm not talking about staff, okay, being like on staff at a church because we all have a ministry. And I want to encourage you. Maybe you're sitting here and you say, you know, I don't really have a ministry. Now, we could define terms, and the, the word ministry kind of gets fuzzy. It just depends on how you look at it. But when I say ministry, it doesn't have to be on this property, right? Ministry can happen anywhere. And we all have a ministry. We have a ministry to our family. Uh, husbands, we have a ministry to our wives, right? We're to care for them. We're to disciple them. We're to pray for them. And wives, you have a ministry to your husband, really, to do the same thing, to pray for them, to care for them. And, uh, you know, we have a ministry, for those of us that have kids, we have a ministry to our children uh, to make disciples in our home. Uh, we have a ministry in our neighborhood, right, that God has placed you, not by accident, but God has placed you in, where you live for a reason, for a purpose, okay? And so you have to look at your ministry as a neighborhood, uh, or your neighborhood as a ministry. I talked to our teenagers this morning about school. They're, they're going back to school. Some went back this week, some go back next week. But I said, guys, listen, this year in school, I want you to look at your school as a mission trip. You're on a nine-month mission trip to the public school, right? You, this isn't something that, oh, I have to do, and I have to get up, and I have to go to class, and I have to fulfill these requirements. That's not the way to look at it. This is a mission field. You have a ministry at your school. Uh, we have a ministry where we work, okay? Uh, many of you have jobs. You have a place of where you go to every day. And you work, and you probably see the same people every day. You have a ministry to those people. Uh, we also can do ministry here, right? We have play holes and things that need to be done here. Uh, you know, we need nursery workers. Uh, some of you could say, you know, hey, I can give up one uh, Sunday out of the month and volunteer in the nursery. Uh, we need uh, people to help in our uh, kids' ministry. Um, you know, we could use help in student ministry. We can uh, use help people mowing the grass. I mean, there's so many things, so many things. Food distribution, I could go on and on. So many things that you can help with. So I would encourage you, hey, if you don't have a ministry, if you're not serving like here on a weekly basis, then, then get involved. You know, find a place to serve. And, uh, and we, we definitely have things to do for the glory of God. But number two... Uh, here's what else we communicate if we only think that the event is a success, okay? Uh, in, in a sense, you can be discouraged 
when the responses at that event aren't as good as they were last year. Um, you see, when, when you have an event-driven mentality, it's always one-upping the next year. And, and here's the challenge. Okay, and this doesn't happen here, and I'm grateful. This has never been the case here. Uh, because I think it's a very toxic environment to work in. And we wouldn't have long-term staff like we do if, if it was like that here. You know, our pastor's been here over 30 years, and Tim was here for 18 years, and we're coming up on eight years. Um, you wouldn't have long-term staff if it was this way. But, you know, you sit in a staff meeting, and, and you know, someone says, hey, how many, uh, how many salvations did we have at Vacation Bible School this year? Well, we had two. We had two people saved. Well, how many did we have last year? We had eight. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, we had eight last year, only two this year. And it's just a very toxic thing, like, like it's up to us, <laughs> you know, where that, you, you put that burden on someone that, man, you, know, you, you have to get people to make a decision, and you, you, you have to increase numbers, but that's something that God does. Uh, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we have a license for laziness, all right? We, we are to share the gospel with as many people as possible. Uh, that is to be our life's mission uh, you know, the purpose of Friendship Baptist Church is what? It's to honor God by seeing lives changed, by me bringing people to Jesus Christ and me discipling them. So uh, me personally, I need to be sharing the gospel. I need to be winning people to Christ. I need to be involved in discipleship. And so we give the gospel, but we leave the results to God. Number three, here's the big one, and it wouldn't be said publicly, but it's inferred privately. When you have an event-only mentality... You discount every other thing that happens around church. And we need to be careful about this because so many good things happen, so many things that you guys don't hear about that, that, that I just catch wind of that something happened in terms of ministry. And I think, wow, that's so cool. I, n- I never knew that they were working with that person. I never knew that story. And hopefully we can share some of those stories with you in time. But, uh, you know, it, it can so easily become about the event. We've got to get everyone to the event. The event is the highlight of the year, and it's all about the event. And, and you just discount all the men's activities, ladies' meetings, you know, children's ministry, life groups, worship service, discipleship groups. You discount the daily walking in the Word. Uh, and now we have to do big events, though, right? We have to have things where we can get people to come and, But the question is, what do we do after the event? You see, it's like vacations. Vacations are great. And some of you guys took vacations this summer. Uh, Vacations are are always a a good thing. My parents were really good about taking a family vacation every year. And we were able to see some really cool places. But you know what? Those vacations or events didn't mature me into the man I am today. Uh, why am I the way I am today? It's because of the daily faithful discipline of my parents investing in me. Uh, you know, in the car, over a meal. Um, you know, we, we had dinner together as a family almost every night at the table. Almost every night. And I remember those dinner times and the conversations that we had. And uh, that's what shaped me and that's what molded me. And we, if we look at Paul's life by... By those things, we'll discount the ministry and say that, man, he was an absolute failure. But the discipleship process is just that. It's a process. It's, it's a slow process. Uh, you know, spiritual growth happens all the time. It's attending worship every week. It's hearing messages. It's applying them to your life. It's being in a life group, in a discipleship group. 
It's going to vacation Bible school. It's going to camp. It's going to marriage weekends. It's reading the Bible every day. It's memorizing the Word. It's all that combined. And, you know, it's kind of like eating food. I was just sharing this with someone the other day. You know, in your house, you probably have pictures uh, hung in your house of your kids. You know, many of you have your kids hanging on the wall when they were maybe like a baby and a toddler, and, and then they grow up. And, and you look at them now and you think, wow, they've really grown. Like, what happened? How did they, how did they get this big? You know, where did time go? And uh, we can't chart every way that that happens. And we can't even remember every meal that we fed them. How many of you moms remember every single meal you fed your kids? You don't, right? We just don't. I don't even remember what we fed our kids last week. Um, but the, they grew. They grew into the man or woman they are today. And the same thing happens in your spiritual life. Same thing, right? So I want to challenge you to think about this. You may think that you have made no impact, no impact in the people that you're investing in. Just keep going. All right, just keep going. Some of you may be beating yourselves up today because you say, man, I just, I've made very little impact with my kids. Just keep at it, okay? It's a process. Just keep on sharing, keep on praying, keep on working because God's working. So just keep trusting him. And here's the point. Again, we're not trying to save people. God does that. I hope this encourages you. I think someone needs to hear this today. We're moving people one step closer to Jesus on a thousand-step journey. That's what we're doing. So this, this idea of, of evangelism can be overwhelming, but we have to have the right perspective on it. It's not my job to save them. I just need to share the gospel. And if I can get them one step closer, that's a win, right? That's a good thing. And so we just pray and we, we trust the Lord. Uh, here's the last thing I'll leave with you, okay? And, and I'll just mention it. And uh, we'll give some announcements and pray. But number two, begin a spiritual conversation with a lost person. Okay, so think, think of a lost person in your life and begin a spiritual conversation with them. You say, well, how, how do I start? Well, you start with something that they like to talk about. How many of you know that a lot of people like to talk about themselves, right? We like to talk about ourselves. And so you can just begin a conversation like, hey, how's your family? You know, how are your kids? How are things at work? Uh, you know, where'd you, where'd you go on vacation? You know, you just ask them questions and they get to talking about themselves. And then you want to move it to, to spiritual things. Hey, have, have you ever considered like eternity? Have you ever thought about spiritual things at all? And so you just move the conversation very quickly to those and share your story, share your testimony, share the gospel. And so I want to encourage you, don't give up. You know, sow the seeds, trust the Lord, and just leave the results to him. All right, just leave the results to him. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you.